Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Black Don't Crack, on confronting racist stereotypes and beliefs about black people. We're listening to guitarist-composer Sonny Chirac's Black Woman from 1969, featuring his then-wife Linda Chirac, vocalizing pain and release. Today we're joined by two of the four hosts of the Black Myths podcast, which is produced in Indianapolis. Two Black, a spoken word poet and teaching artist, and L. Roberts, a writer and facilitator. As described on the show's website, the Black Myths podcast is an informative, conversational show analyzing popular myths about black culture of a sociopolitical nature. Translation, they debunk the BS said about black people. Its two other hosts are Shell Daniel, a professional piercer and creative director, and Ryan Mills, a writer and activist. Black Don't Crack is the title of the first season of the podcast, which focused on myths concerning the health and physical characteristics of black people. The group started with the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on the black community, and then discussed myths surrounding melanin, the pigment found in varying degrees in skin, and concluded the six-part season with shows on myths about black women's health, specifically the belief that black women are responsible for their alarmingly high maternal death rate, 57% of all maternal deaths in the U.S. The season also included a special on lynching, an unceasing threat to black Americans as evidenced in Bloomington, Indiana over the 4th of July weekend, when resident Vox Booker was attacked by a group of white men at Lake Monroe. That show actually took issue with labeling police aggression and murder of black people as lynching, which is more precisely an act perpetrated by non-state actors. The group has opened a new season with the myth that the police are a necessary institution in our society. Here's a promo clip for that show. So the budget at the NYPD is, okay, look, let's talk about this number, guys. I'm a reader and not a counter. Somebody read me this number. Six billion dollars. <laughs> what? Six billion. Yeah, what? that's what I mean. Don't, billion. don't, feel, don't feel bad. A lot of us don't see that many There's zeros. There's so many zeros yeah. here. Six billion. Okay. Six billion. <laughs> what? Six billion just for the police? There are For countries that don't have a GDP of six billion dollars. <laughs> like wow. everything, the all the resources within that country don't come. So that six billion makes them what? The thirty-third largest military spender on the planet. Just, just New York. Just New York. Wow. Oh shit. Six okay. billion. What the billion. F- do they? do? We'll also discuss the liberal premise of hate crimes legislation and the ways it empowers the carceral state rather than protecting citizens against hate crimes. And our two breaks today will feature performances by Two Black titled Black Card and Blood Spatter. And now, Black Don't Crack on the BS set about black people on Interchange on WFHB. Let's just start with how this began. How did you two come together for this particular podcast? 
<laughs> do you want to talk about the study group? <laughs> I think that's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that was what I was thinking. Um, I think it was 2015. I started a, a study group online. And then the more I read, the more I learned that having any type of having those type of conversations online weren't a good idea anyway. Uh, so and L was uh, one of the people that was involved in it. The study group particularly was made to focus on on not simply uh, like black history as trivia or just this kind of celebratory championing of progress. We didn't want to talk about it from that standpoint, but more so how did how did black history interact with the rest of power relations that were happening around the world? So, for instance, how did the Cold War influence um Black activism and and the type of demands that could be made and the concessions that were given based upon the United States war with Russia within this whole Cold War dynamic, um, or how did the Great Depression influence it? Like, how did these global ideas influence what Black people were going through? Um, as opposed to looking at Black history as some something that's happening somewhere else outside of the rest of the world. That's not how life works. That's definitely not how history works. And I felt like. Um, black history was seen through that lens. So we all came together and it became a collective project, regardless of if I started it, it became a collective project because it took everybody's minds. And there were different um, activists or artists throughout the city who would come in and out. And it even got to a point where we started holding actual formal debates. We would have we would read us. We would have a subject that we studied a month every month. We would read a slew of books. Um, like portions from it. All of those books were free, by the way. Uh, we <laughs> we uh, pretty good. We got a pretty good bootlegging game going with PDFs. Uh, so we provided all those books, um, and then we would read on the subject, and then we would people from the group would um, pick a actual resolution, and we would debate on that. Um, that eventually fades out just because of scheduling and everything else. But I still wanted to do something that was responding to history in that way, but also was. Um, able to just correct the way we frame things. Cause I've, I think that's what I learned the most through doing that was the way we frame subjects dictate a lot. If we don't have a good understanding of it, our solutions are often tepid, such as thinking that you can fix the police in and of itself is based just on bad framework to me or thinking that you can fix the police based off of training or diversity or these, this is just based on poor framing of an issue. And there's a lot of myths underneath that. So for us, we wanted to debunk myths that often push us in directions that just lead us right back to the problems we're trying to break. And Al, you were a part of the, that group as well. Yeah. Um, I, I think I got more involved, um, towards the latter part of it when we started meeting in person at the library. Um, and I did a few debates. Yeah. Um, that was that was a lot of fun. Like it was just a group of folks like like minded but very different and we were really studying together and it was fun and also like we were I think sharpening each other's swords and it, it definitely felt like reminiscent of so many different groups over the course of history that studied in the same way um, and like carrying forward that tradition in a very like hyper local kind of way was uh, important. And I, I think it gave way to uh, giving the podcast a really solid foundation. Well, let's just jump into the podcast mm -hmm. uh, and what it is. Uh, Two Black, you began this per, out of the reading group, or uh, do you, are you responsible for this, Two Black? Do we, do we, hold, do we hold your feet to the Are you going to claim it on the record? <laughs> oh, man. 
yeah, I mean, I guess you could blame me for that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like I said earlier, it came out of the study group. Um, instead of it being where people met up together, we can we can publish these ideas because that was our study group is private. We didn't let white people in. Um, no offense, <laughs> we, we didn't. We were just like very much about. We wanted to have a time to just talk about stuff like the stuff we read because it's like always. It's, it always feels, especially nowadays in this society, like everything is like a means to an end. So you can never just come together to just do that thing. So to actually come together and say, we just want to study. We're not coming here to plan out anything beyond that. If it happens, great. And then this is just something that happened out of that where I, on the on a lesser, I guess, scholarly level, like Elle knows all the time, I will just send her a screenshot of some dumb shit I see online. Like, what is this? Like, why did this person say that? Like, I do that all the time. Yeah. Um, or I'll just, or I'll, and I have several friends that I do this with where I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense. Or I'll just, and then, and you can just watch somebody make the point and then you see it take off and it just goes, it descends down into hell. And it's like the entire premise of said point was off. And this is not something that's said by, okay, somebody that has zero followers, it's somebody with a lot of, of, of the large platform might say this and it just takes off and next thing you know an entire narrative is created and i noticed that there's not any consistent um publications dedicated to debunking specifically the bullshit said about black people like there's not anything i've ever been able to find there's a few that have started and stopped but there's not anything that's consistently said we're going to sit down and actually like give you the facts on it as well as a larger political analysis of it. I just had never seen it. So I thought that was something that we could feel since we had spent all that time researching and 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 debating these ideas and not even not always agreeing either, but just understanding that the positions on these things are much larger. So Because I always feel like running. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Black Don't Crack. And we're joined by two of the hosts of the Indianapolis-based Black Myths podcast, L. Roberts and Two Black. We focus on the ways social problems are framed as individual matters, even as they're racialized to cover entire populations, and the negative effects of liberal approaches to institutional racism. Or as in having given someone a run for his money, or as in running out of time. time, 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 time. Like black-on-black crime. That's a trope. So if you accept the premise of it, you get even when you try to argue against it, you still can almost fall into the same concepts. Even when we say like, okay, well, white on white crime happens too, but that doesn't. We don't talk about that. Like I get that's a pushback you often hear, but that doesn't even go far enough because it's it's assuming that crime that happens is based solely upon race. Like black people are killing each other because they're black, or even white people are killing each other because they're white. When so that never examines the social problems that even create crime in the first place exactly. it doesn't examine but if we were to do an episode on it, it's like well honestly crime like we did on our last episode what is crime in the first place mm-hmm. and then two a lot of crime yes there's a racial factor white supremacy and racism is involved in it but there's capitalism there's sexism and then there's just a specific issue of not having money or mm-hmm. <laughs> having a dysfunctional family because you didn't have money or because a social program got cut or i mean there's there's like real materialist ways to explain things and i think sometimes if you get into the liberal concept you talk about things in these really abstract ideas so even when we talk about race it's abstract it's you know it's just kind of like white supremacy is not something you can identify anywhere it's just this boogie 
man mm-hmm. you know um so that doesn't work so it's like for us we like to get in the show we want to get very down to the nitty-gritty like what are the actual policies and things that human beings have done <laughs> to create said you know situation mm-hmm. that's that's how we like to look at it so you can pinpoint those things you know when, so when we talk about the police in our last episode we can pinpoint the where how the police started what policies they've chosen it's just in america over the last 150 years and it's pretty clear that they've never really been the primary goal has never been about protecting and serving that's it's demonstrated in their policies we don't have to just make an abstract statement about it like they showed you you know (laughs) so we what we try to do is just by talking about a myth it opens up a conversation to identify those factors and i've found i'm sure l can say the same thing or the rest of our co-hosts that there's like so many myths within myths yes. that's the stuff i wasn't yeah. ready for yeah. so for the audience i think we give them like a an uh a viewpoint into just it's just it's a road into discovery right like we're just we're discovering it with you you mentioned your other co- co-hosts. So uh, currently, Black Miss has uh, four four participants in it. Is that right? Yes. That's correct. Yeah, and that Ryan and uh, Shell are the other two. Yes. Yeah, Ryan Mills, Shell Thoreau. Now, yeah. do you do you think each of you take a particular uh, viewpoint, or is it just how you are anyway? Probably a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I would but say, but probably more so just how we are. It's true. It's true. And like Black will maybe not like claim this, but like. Even in thinking about like who 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 would be a good fit to kind of push the kinds of conversations forward that we wanted to that like even how our personalities mesh and like how we talk and where we come from and like what our audience looks like like all of those different moving factors I think went into like uh, who would be good for this and like how would it work and um, and I don't know if I can share this but like Ryan started out as just like helping us on the tech side and like we just vibed so well after recording the like the very first kind of like pilot episode that we, we haven't put out yet even uh because we we started uh with coronavirus just with the timing of everything that happened uh we vibe so well we were just like ryan should be on this show <laughs> and then it just it, right you know so uh i think uh podcast I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and i think like how how the hosts kind of approach things and like all of our different politics kind of coming to a head and a very like cool like we don't always agree on everything uh, and that's the beauty of it too like we push back on each other and like can like talk it out and talk it through and and then also like all of our backgrounds uh like where we come from you know like i i i'm someone who does come from money and like really like and that is that is my perspective that's my viewpoint and so being able to not only talk about that but like to uh, to talk about what it means to not come from money and what that looks like and like looking at all the different issues from all of these different perspectives, I think gives us a well-rounded view as like the four of us exploring this stuff together. But I think it, it gives a wider audience something that like, okay, this piece really resonates with me and I'm like willing to go where y'all are going because like I, I hear and I see myself in this space. Um, and I think that's really important. When I was much younger, I used to be much more, probably before Elle met me, I was much more into like the kind of fringe black nationalist stuff. And this is not a knock on black nationalism as a whole, but just some of the fringe stuff, which in popular culture is called Hotep. Um, <laughs> like that was, I was into a lot of that. And a lot of that has 
um, some, you know, it has xenophobic expressions. It has sexist expressions. It has a bit of a narrow understanding even about politics and history and so on and so forth. So when I was really young, I used to be into those things. And so I empathize with people who were into that and where we get a lot of like probably half our myths can come from that world. <laughs> but like I understand that perspective and I think it helps kind of me not be so hard on everybody, even though I I feel like I'm way past that now. Um, I think with with Shell, Shell is like, I don't want to put her whole background out, but Shell is just one, she's a very hilarious person, mm-hmm. but Shell will say the thing that you probably hate yourself for thinking, like she'll say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and it's funny, you know, because when she's on, the po- on point, it's like, like when she said on the last episode that Amazon's probably giving out gift cards for reparations or yeah, something, you was, know, like that, that was, was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you can't think of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so she brings like that. And then she brings just the, the pragmatic street perspective that I think gets left out of a lot of the conversations. So it's one thing to talk about this, these things theoretically. And when you have time to sit down and, and um, divorce ideas from this and figure it out and web through, it, but when you're in the muck of what all those things mean and you don't have time for that you just have to simply go out and pro- provide for your family you have to go out and make make the money that's necessary how do you navigate that and i think that lived experience is very important mm-hmm. i think she brings that to the table Absolutely. um even like strongly in it and then ryan is is probably the the sane person in the group um <laughs> he keeps us together just, he really does <laughs> right 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 he's just the reasonable person that um you know reminds you that we were actually doing a show <laughs> it's time for a break this is too black with black card more on the bs said about black people when interchange returns on wfhb black card what's a black card what's his role is it black owned or is it issued by Chase with a fake, misplaced, Kaepernick black face softened and co-opted on the front? Does it even know what black people want? The nigga, I sure don't. Can I use my black card to cast a meaningful vote? Does it subsidize my life so I don't have to buy or sell dope? And yo, what exactly is woke? Is it hotep or is it intersectional? Is it ignorant or is it intellectual? Is it ashier or is it shea butter? Is it bad and bougie or is it straight gutter? And with all these hashtags, can I free my black ass on black Twitter with it? And since Twitter wouldn't exist without blackness, nigga, yo, why can't I just go buy Twitter with it? Can I then use those funds to free all the forgotten political prisoners with it? Seriously, nigga, what is it? Can I trade that for an H-Rap? Oh, I heard it's for the culture. So does that mean that fake equals we invite all the mediocre white people to the cookout? Just for doing something that's like halfway white and halfway human, like selling soul food and whole foods? Does a black card include that pseudo woke token white dude? What's his rule? I just want to know why. Can a black card be gentrified? Does a black card even need a white ally? Who distributes this black card? Can you order it on Amazon? Can you find it at Best Buy? And what aisle do they sell it at Walmart? Can I withdraw my poppin' melanins and load it as a gift on a black card for Christmas? Can I then sell this black card as tanning booths? Get it? Really, what is it though? 
Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show is Black Don't Crack, and our guests are Two Black and L. Roberts, two of the four hosts of the Indianapolis-based Black Myths podcast. In this segment, Roberts highlights the ways melanin does more than simply color one's skin, and Two Black makes a case that the black maternal death rate needs to be seen in the same light as police murders of black men. And when I read the fine print, does it read to be five-fifths? Or do I have to compromise how I exist to pay a talented attempt to get a membership? If you don't mind, let's just uh, just kind of run over the this, this season or the, the various episodes uh, mm-hmm. so we can find out what you've been talking about. And, and clarify, when you say black myths, do you mean myths about black people, myths in the black community, myths of all kinds, and you know, is it is it specific to a black perspective, or what's what's its primary goal? We say myths said about, or we say bull. The, the actual hashtag or the quote is the BS or the bull said about black people. But that the stuff, thing, the things that are said about black people can be said by black people or by people outside of the community as well. Mm-hmm. So it's the same concept either way so there can be a black person who say there's plenty of black people who will say something like what about black on black crime right. or there are plenty of um, black people who have internalized like El Sama internalized like an anti-blackness or just a kind of a racist idea of ourselves based on you know usually just being poorly educated about the subject matter um, or some of them may genuinely believe these things you know that's mm-hmm. that's up to their own perspectives but the ideas themselves regardless of who they're coming from are still the problem so we don't necessarily focus on well this is what white people say about us or this is what black people this is what the the uh latino community like we don't (laughs) take we don't look at it that way because the ideas themselves regardless of who's uplifting them are still harmful Mm -hmm, so it's mm -hmm. you know it's the things that the ideas that apply to us that get in our way and then we have like actual rules like you it has to be a quantifiable myth um you know it can't just be something randomly that's out there so it has to be something like we were talking about earlier that we can measure or it has to be some type of of widespread to it like it can't be something that just one random white person said you were the gas station. You know? <laughs> what I what I do really appreciate, I'll just add here that um, I think that we do really well, uh, just kind of organically by virtue of like who we are to each other. Like for any given topic, um, there there is so much that we cover that like is widely true in terms of like any given person can say this about uh, the black community. Um, and also moments where we're like just talking to ourselves and each other, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like we're just talking to other <laughs> black people right now and like we know it and our black listeners know it and like we don't really have to like lay that on super thick. Um, mm-hmm. and right. Anyone else who happens to be listening, y'all are just along for the ride. Um, but, right. And I think we really, we really weave in and out of that really easily and seamlessly. Um, and I, I do love that. Yeah, it's like we're at peace with it. So. There's not a lot of like, okay, white people, it's time for you. To, like, we just don't. Yeah. <laughs> okay, black people, we need to, like, we just don't no. do that kind of virtue signaling. It's just kind of us being ourselves and we're fluid enough in our own life and our own culture mm-hmm. to where we don't have to necessarily tell you, like, signal this is when this is time for white people to turn off their, turn their earphones down. Like, this isn't, you know, like, we don't. 
we don't have to do that. Like you can hear it for what it is, take away what you find, and then we also leave some type of fact sheet, you know, so you can look at our stuff and see where we got our sources from. Yeah, that's that's exactly. very that's a really nice element. Yeah, I mm-hmm. I do appreciate that. The season uh, has been uh, coronavirus, as you said. You jumped out on that because it was obviously timely. Uh, black women don't take care of themselves. It was a two parter. Uh, melanin is a superpower. That was one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> two episodes there as well. You did a special on on lynching with uh, interchange friend Rasul Moat, and um, this most recent one was we need the police. But what are what are the what are some of the things that you've discovered on the program that you just were just not I guess shocked by the, the melanin one had to contain a lot of shocks to, mm-hmm. to you. Um, but um, are, I mean some some great moments or just some not only just discoveries but just totally like shocking moments for you so in wanting to respond to how uh the public health crisis was specifically impacting the black community uh globally but also like specifically right here in the u.s um it it that that topic never stopped being a topic like no matter where we went in the first season which was all about uh all about kind of uh, myths around our, our health and like black don't crack black don't crack exactly yeah. um and so that we found a way to like weave what what is happening in this current moment uh uh every single topic back to that and i think melanin was maybe the one that i was like oh whoa <laughs> like like I, I i really enjoyed having uh dr nina jablonski on um because one thing that she helped us really kind of break down and understand um, is is how different skin colors came to be. Um, and specifically, one of the reasons why um, uh, not completely, like we're not completely ignoring uh, social factors that uh, are determinants of health, like racism straight up is a determinant of health. Um, but on a larger scale that uh, uh, black, black people are uh, largely vitamin D deficient just based off of how far away like black Americans live away from the equator. Um, and that deficiency impacts our ability to fight off uh, illnesses, including um, uh, immunodeficiency stuff, like specifically thinking about how coronavirus attacks the body. And that could be one of the, the factors that has something to do with why so many black and brown people uh, have been di- disproportionately impacted by, uh, by this virus um and i i couldn't believe like she had like she laid it out so succinctly um and i don't even think we were uh we were even thinking in that direction but the way that she was able to kind of like help us learn more about like this this uh organ that is our skin um and how how it it is connected to so many other things um uh racism not included um or also included that melanin itself uh, lends itself to so many other other issues inside of our bodies. So that that was a big one for me, <laughs> an aha moment. Well, as far as the one episode that I struggled with the most, or I won't say struggle, but that that pushed me the hardest, I think, was um, black women die because they don't take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. One, it was tough because you know we were trying to stay within our ideas of making things quantifiable and. What was so devastating about that was there's not enough research on why so many black women die um, under maternal care. Mm-hmm. Like there's not of, enough like, data preventable on it. issues too. Like exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's not enough so, studies. 
So we always try to formulate a myth that can get us right to the teeth of the data. But we found that it was so there's so many different factors that you can't necessarily link together as like one chain link. They're just all over the place, like Mm -hmm. not listening to black women, thinking black people and specifically in this case, black women don't feel pain. And there's not any like legislation that has led to this, like that on one level, there's all these different factors within the medical system. So it was really hard to pinpoint, okay, why is this keep happening? Because even, and then you you say, oh, is it just a class thing? And you look at, no, it's not even just that because even in states where they've been able to reduce maternal deaths for women in general, black women are still dying the most. So what is even black women with money, black women that have secure jobs, Mm -hmm. like there wasn't, Mm -hmm. there's nothing, you know, a lot of times we're talking about the left, a lot of times the left likes to attribute everything to um, an underlying like factor of just capitalism or just class. And you really saw the limitations of that, that analysis when we dealt with this. Mm -hmm. Um, This really deserves just as much scrutiny Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, as police brutality. Like there's a debate right now, or there's a lot of conversations about making sure we recognize the different people within the black community beyond just cisgender black men who die from the police. And I think that's a necessary conversation. But I think this is even more alarming because you have the data, not just to show that black women are, are harmed by, but by far, you know, disproportionately making up 57% of the deaths um, under maternal care. And then just that idea, the myth itself, that they it's because they don't take care of themselves, mm-hmm. you know, which is a long myth about black people being lazy and how it's, this, it's not the system, it's our behavior, it's our culture that leads to these negative outcomes. And we were at least able to debunk that that had nothing to do with it. Uh, like that, that was not a factor as to why this was happening because you had women who were, who were healthy, who had health care, and still this was happening to them, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because I always feel like running. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Black Don't Crack, and we're joined by two of the hosts of the Indianapolis-based Black Myths podcast, L. Roberts and Two Black. We focus on the ways social problems are framed as individual matters, even as they're racialized to cover entire populations, and the negative effects of liberal approaches to institutional racism. Or, as in having given someone a run for his money, or... As in running out of time. Time, time, time. Well, they're powerful episodes, and they're also um, disarmingly light frequently as well. So you kind of, uh, even even when you're learning something that's shocking in a lot of ways, it's 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 done with a light touch. Shell's probably the most credit for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but even though she may not seem like she's saying that much, she's just her presence keeps it light. Mm-hmm. Um, none of us try to take ourselves too seriously uh, some of this to me really all of this is funny on one level like i'm into dark humor i guess i don't know so like all of this is funny to me like you were saying um doug as far as just how we people even believe this shit. like this is funny to me you know so when you put it like that uh <laughs> like like that's when it becomes funny so even in our last episode uh, i think i said in the monologue like george bush says we need to we need to deal with systemic racism like that's hilarious that george bush would say that like that's that's just funny you have to laugh at something like that mm-hmm. and then i back it up with you know, okay joe, if you ask joe biden the best way to deal with it is you know just shoot him in the leg <laughs> instead of the heart you know and if you don't support that then you're not yeah. black like that stuff's funny to me because yeah. the irony and just the level of hypocrisy sometimes you have to laugh at what i liked about this last one is the way that you confront people's response to the sense that it's a proper thing that there are police, that the police do a 
public service good, that they work for the benefit of the community. Um, so just the origins of the police, I mean, they, they exist to serve power, but they exist to serve uh, initially southern power and southern slave power. It's, it's easy to go from there to nowhere good. You can't reform mm-hmm. out. That, that is a DNA structure right there. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if we talked about it. You got you guys made jokes along the way about TV shows. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It is a long history of propaganda, though. And that uh, actual police entities, like, pushed for <laughs> pushed for those collaborations to happen. Uh, everything from, you know, law and order to uh, dare programs in elementary schools. You know, um, it's all designed to no. kind of put forward this idea that, one, Police are good and they're here for you. Uh, and two, uh, that uh, drugs are bad, for example. So like we have a whole class, whole generations of people uh, kind of coming up to believe that these things are true when in actuality, you know, the, the history of of the the federal government's like literal, like it's not a conspiracy theory. Like this, this actually happened um, in which like the federal government produced the very crime that it declared war against um, and and threw like entire generations of people away. Like that is just what happened. That's what I love about the show, too. I mean, we've talked about this already that like kind of uh, like connecting the dots for folks um, and also like really getting into the weeds on the the data and the history um, because we're we're not we're not making wild claims about uh, what what is true and what isn't like we're we're backing it up and then and then providing the the resources um, on air and then saying like here's a list of things you can go back and look at in case you have more questions about this like it's just a starting point uh, for folks to to educate themselves uh, and also unlearn some stuff on their own. There was stuff that didn't even make the episode like we were talking about the the Pinkerton Detective Agency in in, um, in Pennsylvania and how they were largely built off of the U.S. Um, occupation in the Philippines. The, the they they were modeled after the counterinsurgency troops in the Philippines when the U.S. chose to essentially colonize the Philippines. Um, and that police were based off that. So when we say the police are a military, it's not just a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's actually a that didn't we didn't even get to bring that up or um, you know how the the Clinton administration talking about liberals. They're the ones who actually when everybody's talking about now about demilitarizing the police, it was the Clinton administration that authorized that program in and of itself mm-hmm. to give military weapons to police departments. Um, so I think like you were saying as far as this narrative of the police we largely get it from tv and i think we also just get it from our larger culture that thinks that problems are individual and Mm -hmm. that's just how we all we think about things so if problems are individual then they come down to moral corrections that individuals need to make um and it's not to say that they'll that we all don't have our own individual corrections we should be able to make within ourselves or that we don't have any autonomy over our choices i'm not saying that for the record but even the things that I have to correct within myself still fall under a social context. They're not simply within me. Even if I've internalized it, I internalize it from a larger social environment. And most people think that problems are individual. So they think you just need a, you need to slap somebody on the wrist with a charge. You need to put them in prison. You know, like it makes logical sense. Our whole, our entire society uh, reinforces that idea. 
And then when you really look at the history of it, it's like, man, like, you mean people didn't just do drugs because they were bad people, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, or people didn't just do drugs because, um, you know, they were just because black people just don't have any ability to take care of themselves or they're not just more prone to violence or no, like this has nothing to do with it, actually. Like, you know, there it's not because poor people are just lesser than rich people or they just don't know how to manage their money or like all of that is the things that continues to just feed these ideas so when you the police seem like a logical correction to that you understand the problem is coming from much deeper issues than that then the police don't the the police all of a sudden really don't make any sense you can't look at it and be like okay so a bunch of people who are impoverished and who have been oppressed for centuries are we're gonna fix that by putting more of them in jail like that doesn't make sense to even a liberal person if you put it that way yeah like yeah because that's not even the root of the problem so the police by function the police can only they can choose to lock you up or they can't that's all they can do it's time for another break and another performance by two black this is blood spatter stay with us for more on the black myths podcast when interchange returns on wfhb let's paint the world in blood splatter Let's lather it in imperialistic lavishness. Let's paint red, white, and blue stripes on the backs of these savage Africans. Let's use them as mannequins for our empty canvases. Let's whip them, strip them, three-fifths them, bomb them, Afrikan them. Let's teach the nigger African and the nigger American that they have absolutely nothing in common. I said, let's paint the world in blood splatter. Let our destinies manifest through the breasts of the native women we put our kids in. Then milk the clock forward and reward them as illegal nannies and mammies, conquistador these whores, because our law is the Lord, and the Lord saith that no man shall lay it with another man because he needed to make his children for our war. So fuck your gayness unless it's exploitative. I said, let's paint the world in blood splatter. Let's send forces to raid resources where even the slightest few gather. We can't miss even the slightest crevices of the earth, but to be safe, let's reverse the evidence where... Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Black Don't Crack, about the BS said about black people. That's the tagline from the Black Myths podcast, produced in Indianapolis. Our guests are L. Roberts and Two Black, who host the show. In this segment, we take a close look at hate crimes legislation and how it's a liberal myth that it does any work fighting hate. We begin the segment with some background on L. Roberts and her development as a writer. Wait, I got an idea. Let's make this a religion and call it patriotism. Sanctified and genocide. Hallelujah, red, I need more red. Hallelujah, red, I need more red. Hallelujah, red, I need more red. I said, let's paint the world in blood splatter. Let's aspire to be like... You're both in Indianapolis right now. The podcast comes out of Indianapolis. Uh, uh, You're not originally from there, are you? I'm not. um, I was born in D.C. and raised in northwest Indiana in a little town called Merrillville. I went from living mostly around family and friends, uh, like black and brown people in uh, what's now like Prince George's County, which is a very, very black area of the country and has been for a very, very long time, to Northwest Indiana, which um, you take a step away from Gary, Indiana, um, and when the steel mills closed, uh, there was a huge rush of white flight Uh, from Gary to surrounding uh, areas, townships were created 
for that express purpose, and Maryville is actually one of them. Um, and so I, I grew up in a in a place that um, was effectively kind of split down the middle in terms of like the white side of town and the like closer to Gary side of town, which were mostly black and brown people. Um, and I just happened like my parents bought a house right in the middle of it and I got sent to school on the white side of town. Um, I was bused pretty far actually to to go to elementary school um, because the one that was closer to me was already full. Um, otherwise I would have been in school with other mostly kids who look like me. And I, I say all that to say that I I don't regret that. I'm, I'm grateful for the experience and also um, <laughs> being a black kid growing up with uh, so many white suburban influences, I think, really shaped and impacted my my viewpoints. And um, it took a lot of work on the part of, of close friends and, and family members and folks that I went to church with. I went to church in East Chicago, which is uh, also another very Black area. Um, that folks kind of really gathering me up and getting me together because um, I definitely know that my politics were shaped by my experiences in childhood and not to say that those things are all bad but uh, I had a lot to unlearn in terms of internalized anti-blackness just by virtue of where I grew up and who I grew up grew up around um, and it still informs how I talk to other people because there's a there are a lot of black people who are in similar positions um, who haven't maybe had those come to Jesus moments where uh, we're moving closer and closer to unpacking our own bullshit around uh, whiteness and around anti-blackness. Um, and I feel like in a very unique position to be able to to speak the language that we, we black people who are in similar positions uh, can understand and come to different points of, of politicization. Now, you're uh, a writer. How, uh, how did that happen to you? Or did you always want to be a writer? <laughs> I came to write in the way that I do now, mostly because I was really pissed off uh, there was a column that ran in um, in the Indie Star newspaper, or maybe it was the Indie Recorder, I can't even remember. Uh, a colleague of mine who shall re- uh, remain nameless, um, older black guy, wrote a really terrible column about how uh, quote-unquote black-on-black crime is like a self-cleaning oven. And I was so mad when I read it. I was like, I have to do something with this rage. So I wrote an entire op-ed, not even realizing that's what it was. And I was going to just submit it as like a letter to the editor. Um, but I happened to, not happen to, I'm connected to a lot of poets and journalists and writers and artists. Um, and I posted a Facebook status about how mad I was. And I wrote this thing and I just needed a place to put it. And the the editor of Nouveau, uh, which is a local independent paper here, uh, was like, yes, I will publish it. Please send it to me. And that's how I got started. Um, so I went from op-ed writing, which was fine and, and good. Um, and I think it, it has its own drawbacks, even with like opening me up to a larger audience than say like starting out as like a blogger. Um, but I shifted into independent publishing, uh, blogging uh, through a subscription based site that I started a couple years ago because I wanted 
more creative control and I wanted to write longer pieces. Uh, the, one of the drawbacks of publications is kind of keeping things tight to about seven to 800 words. I'm more of a 1500 word kind of person. Um, and also just really wanting to stick to the politics that I wanted to explore. And so often, uh, even the most left-leaning publications are super like capital L liberal and aren't willing to to uh, expand their imagination, uh, politically speaking. Um, so I found making my own space gave me a lot more room to uh, to write about what I really found interesting and really wanted to dig into the weeds on. Yeah. Uh, there are particular uh, particular pieces you you think um, you'd like to talk about or that uh, have have meant meant a lot to you or yeah. uh, maybe even caused that caused the most interest. I started a series exploring um, hate crimes legislation, um, particularly uh, the the negative uh, side of what hate crimes legislation uh, look like in in real time and over the course of the last. Uh, 20 to 30 years since they've been in play. Um, And I I started it in part because uh, the Indiana legislature was uh, really, at least the Democrats were pushing really hard for it at the time. Um, And then when the Republicans uh, who have held a majority in the Indiana State House for literally ever uh, took up the cause, the more moderate Republicans took up the cause, uh, I I knew something was off. um, And I wanted to look at uh, the legislation itself very closely. Um, And so it became kind of a a building a case over time against the legislation. Uh, The more that I was studying the work of people like Kate Whitlock and Dean Spade and Miriam Kaba, realizing that uh, this kind of legislation just further invests uh, resources um, into systems that already uh, harm the very people that uh, hate crimes legislation is supposed to like explicitly protect. Um, and, and further than that, like wanted to really uh, make the case for um, a, a, a case against liberalism as a whole, um, that we find the cause uh, to attach ourselves to politically uh, for reasons that um, actually don't make a whole lot of sense and don't cause us to look at the ways in which uh, we as people try to externalize the work that we need to do inside of our communities to actually take care of each other. Um, and hate crimes legislation is, is another one of those things where um, it is just, it, it exists in a long pattern of, of band-aids and uh, over bullet holes. Um, that series became uh, a tool for actually lobbying in the state house. I, I testified against uh, one of the bills in 2018. Because I always feel like running. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Black Don't Crack, and we're joined by two of the hosts of the Indianapolis-based Black Myths podcast, L. Roberts and Two Black. We focus on the ways social problems are framed as individual matters, even as they're racialized to cover entire populations, and the negative effects of liberal approaches to institutional racism. Or, as in having given someone a run for his money, or as in running out of time. 
hate crimes legislation seems intuitively like a good thing, but mm-hmm. uh, already you've pointed, pointed to the way it's supposed to be protecting people, and that's what it sounds like it does. So how does it not? Uh, that's a really good question. Even in the states that have the most comprehensive hate crimes laws that cover all of the civilly protected groups, uh, classes, so to speak, so things that come to mind like race and age and gender, sexuality, class, uh, so on and so forth. Um, Even in the states that have the the very best uh, hate crimes legislations on their their books, um, what we do find when we look at the actual law itself, um, naming those protected classes, even uh, verbatim from uh, civil rights codes, uh, name race as a word. Um, so we're not we're not talking about people of color. We're talking about race, which means uh, that it can apply to anyone who has a race, which we all do. And so uh, how it can be misapplied and often is is when a black person commits a crime against a white person, for example, um, that is systemically not the same as. Uh, white violence against uh, against black communities. And so uh, we're basically kind of twisting uh, the words because we're not being clear enough in naming those protected classes. Um, the second thing is that uh, a lot of states have kind of built on the momentum around hate crimes legislation and tried to push for uh, including uh, police officers as a protected class. Um, So uh, whether it ended up being a separate law altogether, but just kind of on the tail of uh, how hate crimes legislation was written or here in Indiana, where they were explicitly written into the protected class code, um, that Blue Lives Matter sweep that was happening has everything to do with the fact that um, when we're not being clear about immutable characteristics, and what I mean by that is you cannot change your race, you cannot change, you know, the, the things about you that make you you, um, that an occupation does not count as an immutable characteristic, although uh, the case has been made time and time again. And we're, uh, we're basically, again, kind of using this legislation that it is supposed to protect uh, uh, marginalized groups of people and uh, pretend that uh, police officers exist in those margins when they don't. And then last but not least is that, um, that these laws, what they kind of end up doing is is reinforcing um, this idea that violence, that hate is something that is deeply external. And if we can name it in somebody else, name it in something else, name it as something over there that's happening over there, um, then if we criminalize it, we will we will eliminate it altogether. Um, And it's 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 frankly untrue for a couple of reasons. Uh, What happens when the state itself commits hate against a community of people? Uh, We are not necessarily uh, equipped. Our state is not equipped to police itself. And so what do we do inside of of how we address uh, systemic violence. Um, And two, when we are pushing for hate crimes legislation, what we are effectively doing is giving uh, policing and and prisons and uh, the court system even more ammo to, to lock people up. And we know that uh, those very systems already uh, <laughs> disproportionately affect 
uh, black and brown and queer and poor people. And so we're just giving even more credence and more resources, literal dollars um, into these systems to uh, criminalize and, and lock people up and, and continue reinforcing uh, the idea that this is the only way to address uh, violence of this kind. Just like a lot of other so-called social ills, there's no proof that criminalizing hate actually does away with hate. Somebody's not going to be less inspired to commit what even is defined narrowly as a hate crime simply by having that bill. Like that's that's what I think is interesting, even within the liberal framework. It doesn't it doesn't um, somehow knock down one's one's um, rage towards a specific group like it doesn't do anything about that. So if I'm white and I hate black people. A crime or a hate crime bill doesn't make me hate black people any less, nor does it make me want to act on said hate any less. Yeah. You know, so what's so maybe I can feel happy as a, as the state because I can say, well, we sent this hateful is one hateful white person away who has nothing to do with us for three life terms or something. You know, right. three life sentences. Where they're more but likely all, to interact interact with and be politicized by more white supremacy. Like that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we're really exacerbating. <laughs> the problem there. <laughs> right. uh, again, we've talked about uh, a liberal problem, and it's it's a struggle that uh, a lot of us have uh, when we're on the left um, to fight both against the right and uh, I guess the the moderate or centrist or you know a liberal is generally a centrist. To be on the left in this country means not having any home for the most part, Mm -hmm. because all of our politics is nowhere near left. Here's a specific thing that you can see uh, as a liberal idea that does the work of, you know, uh, does negative work or does work against the people that liberal perspectives are supposed to be helping. Exactly. It's an it's an entry point to talk about kind of the the larger issue around how liberalism has has shaped our idea of what is what is progress and and what is incrementalism and like what we should be grateful for and what we should keep pushing um, pushing further left about um, that uh, so often uh, kind of liberal platitudes and policies are just designed to placate people who don't necessarily have maybe like overt ideas about being uh, superior to other people, um, but maybe like have convinced themselves that like because they're not conservative um, that uh, they've arrived somewhere Um, and that sometimes I think is even harder to combat than like the raging conservative who's like I know where you stand but like this person who's smiling in my face you know um, they their politics are are even more dangerous because they think that they're they're doing help helping when they're really harming um, by by standing on on uh, principles that like don't actually mean anything at all. So it, it really is, <laughs> it, it's a starting point to like open that conversation. Cause it is, it is very hard to talk to people who think they have arrived, who think they are helpful um, and actually open the door to like critically looking at themselves and critically looking at the world around them. It makes liberal sense to say a hate crimes bill is good 
because we are against hate. But at the same time, as you've already pointed out, the bolstering of the prison uh, policing surveillance state that happens within that framework is something, as uh, as Two Black pointed out already, you know, that you might just even look away from. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Won't pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then the then the prison state expands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the liberal the liberal role in that is to make is to say this is right because it morally sounds right. Because mm-hmm. liberalism, I think you know, it gets we frame it now as it being like about they're more so supportive of government or whatever. But liberalism ultimately is this idea of like individual freedom and all of that. That's, that's, that's where that comes from. But I don't think we think about it like that. But so that's, there's still a flaw in that analysis, even though conservatives like to claim that they're about the individual as well. Mm-hmm. Liberals essentially say we can just be better individuals. Right. That's what I often hear from them. Yeah. Like it's, we, we can just be better people. <laughs> that's been a law. That's, that's very ingrained in the American ethos of, of how we just see ourselves as individuals. Like you have to be a good person and you have to treat each other well, you know, it's within the whole Protestant work ethic. And like, that is so much within America's idea of itself that I don't think liberals, as much as they always might push back on conservatives for saying they're victim blamers or whatever, liberals don't necessarily far fall as far away from the same logic. They're, the solutions are, are limited or don't work either. Um, Cause they, they are not willing to really up in the deeper structural problems. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, if I could add here, like, um, and I appreciate you bringing up this question earlier, but um, I used to identify as a liberal. And like, the more that I read, the more I was just like, wow, I was really on some BS. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I just keep moving further and further left and looking at my old self, like you've come a long way. Good for you. Um, and and I think that's like why why I really love like, like the 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 role that I hold uh, even on the podcast where like I know that a certain person will listen to me who may not listen to Two Black or may not listen to Shell or may not listen to Ryan <laughs> because like they want to hear from like the bougie black girl like that's me like, like, and, and I'm just like guess what I'm a communist like, <laughs> I, I just I, I hope like not even to make what it is that we talk about and try to debunk and educate around uh, more palatable because it isn't it is not palatable it is like a matter of like looking at really hard Hard stuff in yourself and around you um, and 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 recognizing where like we have fallen short individually and where we have fallen short communally and systemically, uh, so to speak. And so um, I appreciate liberalism for being exactly where it is there. There is so much room to just keep on pushing um, and waking people up to like, hey, this is not where the fight ends. Because I always feel like running. That's our show. We'll close with the great Gil Scott Heron. This is Running, a new version produced by Chicago drummer Micaiah McCraven. Off of McCraven's February 2020 release, We're New Again, a reimagining. Thanks to Al Roberts and Two Black for joining us. They're the hosts, along with Shell Daniel and Ryan Mills, of the Black Myths podcast. We'll post links to the show as well as to the individual work of both on our website. Just go to WFHB.org and look for Interchange in the programming menu. I'm your host, Doug Storm. I produce today's show. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Because I will be running in the other direction, not running for cover. Because if I knew where cover was, I would stay there and never have to run for it. 
be causing. Because the thing I fear cannot be escaped, eluded, avoided, hidden from, protected from, gotten away from, not without showing the fear as I see it now. Because closer, clearer, closer, nearer, because of you and because of that nice that you quietly, quickly be causing. Because I always feel like running.